Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode of Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is brought to you ad-free by Adaptive Biotechnologies. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, part three in our three-part series on immunotherapy, we are once again joined by Dr. Leo Wong of City of Hope and Megan Gutierrez, the CEO of the Lymphoma Research Foundation, and we're going to talk about policy decisions, how they're made by regulatory and legislative bodies, how they advance and impede progress in immunotherapy, And we're going to talk more about how good policies can actually improve the experience of patients who undergo treatment regimes that include immunotherapy. And now, the exciting conclusion of immunotherapy. So I think it's important to talk about the nice to have versus the need to have and how anything actually ever gets done, at least in this country. And... Someone once referred, it was, I think it was a backhanded compliment that the nonprofit groups like lymphoma research, like stupid cancer, like cancer care, all the groups, we're like spackle. We patch the gaps, we bridge some of the holes, but at the end of the day, it's all just a nice to have. What really does move the needle, solve the problem, zip everything up on a nice bun is policy. And I am an armchair expert in policy. I've spoken at the FDA. I've done my series of ODAC meetings and the jargonization of convincing people to do right things. But, you know, Megan, you're a Beltway, I don't know, recovering Beltway (laughs) (laughs) advisor. And, you know, you did run a health system at Columbia. So you bring all that to the advocacy. We have a unique crow's nest bunch of hats on top of your head. Where's the FDA in all of this? And what have you seen that makes a difference? So I think the FDA has been a tremendous partner uh, in in this work to advance immunotherapies and cancer care generally. I think that uh, with the advent of the uh, Oncology Center of Excellence and some of the other specialized program, I know we in lymphoma have benefited from the emphasis they've placed and importance they've placed on rare disease product development. So uh, when we think about R&D and the way in which the FDA has been supportive of advancing clinical development. Um, They've not only created new regulatory channels to help accelerate the development of products, particularly where there's a significant unmet need, but I think they've also done a great job of 
proactively providing scientific and regulatory advice to medical researchers and manufacturers in our space. So as just one example, um, CBER, the the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research at FDA, uh, are responsible for regulating cellular and gene therapy products. And they've created a number of unique channels and support systems um, to help guide the development of products like cellular therapies, cancer vaccines, something we haven't touched on yet in this series, um, and a number of other indications. And I think that additive support, as well as their openness to including the patient perspective, particularly among those patient populations where novel product development can, in some cases, produce the first ever standard of care for these patients in these disease states, has been quite extraordinary. And and I think we've seen in FDA and Dr. Pazder's office and others um, a meaningful partnership to accelerate uh, the development of many of these therapies, but to do so safely and with the patient interest in mind. I would push back a little bit on the characterization of foundations as spackle. Uh, as somebody who has received generous support from many foundations that are pediatric oncology focused, it really is the lifeblood. It is the thing that permits me to do the work that I do. So, you know, uh, shout out to uh, St. Baldrick's Foundation, Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation, Damon Bunyan Foundation, uh, Hyundai Hope on Wheels Foundation, Be Positive Foundation, Gabrielle's Angel Foundation have all given me money. And it has really allowed me to do the research that that I do every day and has permitted a lot of these really innovative and groundbreaking therapies to progress when at a time when NIH funding is is not available or is not available yet. I mean, I think foundations are really, really critical for supporting paradigm shifting and really visionary work that maybe is very high risk, high reward. Um, the NIH is less good at, at supporting that type of work. So everybody listening should go donate to Lymphoma Research Foundation right now. It Man, is you're hired. <laughs> no, it's absolutely critical. I cannot- Megan's going to get you on the board of directors now. <laughs> Typing up the letter right now. No, I appreciate that. And I thank you for addressing that. Um, and, And I agree. I view our work as critical to key partnerships. So not only, and I think you're absolutely right, some of the high risk, high reward research that we're very proud to have funded. Another area of our work that I think is wholly unique, and I see this in some of my um, sister and brother foundations, is our unique commitment to early career investigators. Um, I think here too, we've unfortunately seen a decline in in public resources for that type of work. And if we want to continue to see the next generation pursue the study and investigation of some of the novel agents and unique success stories that we've been discussing over the course of these um, this series of pods, um, I, I think we're going to need these early career investigators to study them and to make the choice to study oncology and some of these rare disease subtypes like lymphoma. And that's why we pride ourselves in funding three unique grant mechanisms every year 
just to support the next generation of cancer researchers. I think that then coupled with our unique approach to patient education, it's really the hallmark of our mission, which is to eradicate lymphoma and serve those touched by this disease. So our ability to fund research, work directly with researchers, and then bring that cutting edge, up-to-date medical information directly to the patients themselves, I think that is a critical role and and certainly not spackle. Oh, I mean, I agree. I said it was a backhand, a compliment. So the question is, how can the FDA evolve to help advance and support novel approaches to medicine, referring not just to the development of new therapies, but also to improving the patient experience, the experience of caregivers, and the experience of healthcare providers? It's a great question. Both FDA and CMS uh, play a critical role in ensuring patient access as well as continued development of new therapies. So I think at the FDA, they've proven a flexibility and a willingness to evolve as scientific innovations uh, evolve, whether it's clinical trial design or new supportive measures to um, better support individual investigators and manufacturers of new therapies. I think also the inclusion of the patient voice through the FDA patient representative program, to just offer one example, have has been a, a wonderful opportunity for many lymphoma and CLL patients to provide their feedback as it relates to new therapies. I think the point you bring up uh, regarding CMS or the Medicare program is also a good one. Um, So to level set, the Medicare program uses a variety of payment systems and methodologies to pay providers and suppliers of any Medicare-covered items and services. So this would include hospitals, doctors, nurses, equipment, suppliers, and the like. Now, Medicare issues rules on an annual basis that updates these payment systems. It it announces new policies or it revises existing policies that can affect these payments. Now, when we think about entirely new treatment methodologies or treatment paradigms, very often the current rules or regulations aren't a perfect fit. So we either have uh, treatments that don't nicely fit into an existing category, or they're simply administered in a new and unique way or with a new and unique patient population. And so this warrants serious consideration to make certain that the payment policy is adequate for the new therapy. So take as one example, the two CAR T-cell therapies that have been approved by the FDA for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Now, this patient population typically experiences very poor outcomes. We're talking about patients who are now reaching maybe the third or even fourth line of treatment, and they have very limited treatment options. Data also show that of this cohort, many of them are Medicare eligible, making this question of Medicare reimbursement and access critically important. Now, many have said, uh, and we discussed, I think, on an earlier episode, the fact that current Medicare reimbursement policy in this example is inadequate to cover some of the so- uh, some of the costs or expenses associated with CAR T cell uh, therapy. And this is primarily because the policy as it exists today never could have imagined utilizing CAR T cell therapy and in this patient population. 
Now, what we've heard in the past two years since FDA approval of these two therapies from oncologists and individual medical institutions and hospitals, they've reported that inadequate reimbursement could impact their ability to offer this treatment, which in turn could limit access for patients. And because this treatment is currently used after a patient has exhausted virtually all of their other treatment options, timing and access are inextricably linked and they're critical. Now, we also know that there are hundreds of clinical trials currently studying the use of their cellular therapies um, currently available. And so it's likely we're going to continue to learn more about these treatments and which patients benefit from these therapies, in addition to new treatments becoming available. So focusing on this reimbursement policy now in the instances in which we have an approved therapy, I think will be important as we consider widespread adoption later in larger patient populations and more diverse patients populations, but potentially as clinical trials are taking us there in earlier lines of therapy, all making obviously Medicare reimbursement and the private payers who often mirror their reimbursement policies to what the Medicare program has done, um, very important for patients. Let me chime in and ask the practical way in which citizen lobbyists citizen activists, the good kinds of lobbyists that are on the side of the consumer out there, and the nonprofit advocate groups, what does it genuinely look like when you go to an FDA hearing or go to an FDA meeting? What what are the pragmatics, the logistics that it takes to get a, a bill passed, to get a drug approved, to get a policy initiated that actually translates to the everyday person? Gosh, I feel like you could teach a master class in, in that, Matthew. So I don't know what I could offer, but I'll say, you know, what we try to do at the Lymphoma Research Foundation is to make sure that patients recognize if they're armed with their personal story and a passion for our community, those are the most important tools they can have in their armamentarium. I think there are unfortunately a lot of people who are under the misconception that they need to be a public policy expert or have worked in the federal government to be an effective advocate, and nothing could be further from the truth. A lot of the folks in those rooms at an ODAC hearing or in a meeting or a town hall at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they're the government and policy experts. That's their full-time job. But what they often don't know much about is the experience of a patient. And so what we like to tell our advocates at the Lymphoma Research Foundation is that their expertise is being a lymphoma patient sharing their experience, being able to articulate what it was like to be diagnosed, to access new therapies, or to articulate what a new treatment might mean for them and their family is the most critical thing any advocate can do. And now LRF, other patient advocacy groups and nonprofit organizations have often used technology to make advocating for our community as easy as possible. So it might be visiting a website, sending an email to your member of Congress. Often, like us, uh, many organizations provide template, or they might provide an easy-to-use registration form so that you can listen into a meeting uh, on, at, at the FDA without leaving the comfort of your home. You don't need to travel to Washington to be an advocate or to make your voice heard. Um, so I think this is one way, you know, we've talked about technology in the medical context, but I think within the context of public policymaking and advocacy, technology has allowed all of us to raise our voices and advocate for the community. And I think harnessing your personal experience and your passion for our community is the single most important thing any cancer patient can do to help move any of these topics that we've been discussing today forward. I'm just the voice and I stand there and give my little Bill Pullman Independence Day speech 
from the movie, but there are so many people that go unknown. The silent people that spend every day meeting with people, going to staffers, seeing legislators on the Hill. It's like the unsung heroes that we don't know about that really trigger incredible policy. One of my mentors was the late Alan Stovall at the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. And I really did get a true behind the curtain look at how that operation really works. And I, I know the FDA has come a long way, as you pointed out, in being receptive. Were you part of the process when they finally opened up themselves to patient advocate input? Absolutely. The Lymphoma Research Foundation often will work uh, with staff and colleagues at the FDA on any number of issues. So we've uh, obviously worked within the FDA's patient representative program, uh, testified at ODAC hearings, um, have also been part of widespread conversations around particular clinical trials, um, again, providing the patient uh, perspective. We've also worked with the communications division um, to help create and weigh in on some of the new patient-facing materials they've created around new categories of therapeutics, which we've found very helpful and have integrated into our own work. Leo, what extent do the HCP community have on the impact of FDA approval? And I know a lot of it is is the journals and the peer-reviewed publications that quantify the research and the outcomes out there. And by the way, your CV is insanely enviable. I got to give you mad props for the incredible, I may be the only one that read it, (laughs) but it's like, it's worthy. And I think you've done an exceptional job. What do you see as the relevant influence that all these studies and papers have had on the FDA to advance and support these novel approaches? I think we're just getting started. So hopefully things will get even better. There is a tremendous amount of advocacy and lobbying that the researchers and physicians are doing as well through organizations like, you know, American Society of Hematology and ACR, American Association of Cancer Research, send delegations to Capitol Hill every year to try to advocate for patients and for the things that we really feel need to happen. You're right that sort of the currency of what moves the needle most objectively is publications and clinical trials and outcomes. But I think we also have a role to play in in being innovative about how persuasive those arguments can be. And examples of that would be new types of clinical trials or crowdsourced clinical trials that really make it clear to regulatory agencies what the critical need is and how quickly things need to move. Movements like the the Count Me In series of clinical trials have been have been yes. really really helpful in bringing a, a groundswell of sort of grassroots patient support to to these issues and really shining a spotlight on on where the field needs to go. And I think once we can sort of highlight that, once we can point the way, it's easier to get regulatory agencies to, to recognize that. So let's try to wrap this up in a bun because I see this as an ongoing educational series. We, we I'd like to believe we did a good job schoolhouse rocking this down, knowing that the average American doesn't speak this language. And the role of, I mean, again, Leo, you're an evolved HCP. You understand the generationality of this. You're not coming from a a different mentality of the older generations of doctors. And there are plenty of doctors of that generation that really do appreciate this. It is difficult 
to absorb how much progress we have genuinely made. And that progress has created 11 more doors behind it that we all need to keep figuring out how to get through. So would you agree that at the end of the day, it's the same old, look how far we've come, but we have so much more to go? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there are so many examples of that in the rest of life, right? Things from you know technology to industry to automation or whatever, where there are porches full of, of grandparents who are saying, in my day, you know, we didn't have X, Y, or Z. And then that's absolutely true. When we started, as you well know intimately, when we started 25 years ago, you know, we didn't have the things that we have now. And 25 years ago, you could have said the same thing. But at the same time, the reality is, you know, we need to do better. We, we still are not curing 100% of cancer patients. And e- even the ones that we do cure are having side effects that we uh, need to mitigate. So yes, we have an incredibly long way to go. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that was very well stated. And I'm definitely a firm believer that the only way to s- discover the limits of the possible is to go beyond them. And I am certain that the only way we can do that is by forging together as a community, advocates, private foundations, healthcare providers, scientific investigators, clinicians, and communicators. So this has been a great conversation, uh, and I hope there will be more to come. Well, Dr. Leo Wang, Megan Gutierrez, thank you so much for supporting this episode, these shows out there. We'd love to have you back and please stay safe out there. Wash your hands, social distance, all the fun stuff. And we're living in a different world. And uh, while it's burning, we got to keep it spinning. So take care of yourselves. Thank you. Thanks very much. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.